When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm really, and I'm always excited, but this time round, I'm actually excited about a time period that I'm never excited about, only because we've got someone seriously awesome with us. The last time she was here, we had such a riot talking about the Renaissance period. So Beth, tell us who we've got on today. So today um, we're delighted to be speaking to Mary Hollingsworth and Mary is a scholar of the Renaissance period of Italy and as Alina said she's spoken to us before on the podcast about the princes of the Renaissance. She's written books on the Borgias, patronage and the conclave of 1559 but today is here to talk about another scandalous family, the Medici. Welcome Mary. It's nice to be here. Mary, let's get rocking and rolling because we've already been having discussions on pronunciation. So hopefully I am not going to make a blunder. I'm not going to be told off. So I'm going to hit the first question. I'm going to pronounce this correctly. Are we ready? So one of the family names that come down from the Renaissance is the Medici. (laughs) And I got it right. Who were they and how important are they? Um, Well, I think... How do I start? The original family were country dwellers in the, in, who around 1200, 1250 escaped from their country. The countryside was north of Florence, was rather probably not very safe. And it was certainly not very, you know, it wasn't a very nice place to live. It was quite po- impoverished. And they moved into the local, the big new town that it's being built, was growing Florence, which, had, you know, it was, it was inside the safety of the walls suddenly. And they would be safe from, you know, marauders. They'd be, you know, and they had, a, you know, they were no longer going to be peasant farmers, but could, you know, operate in, in the in a town. And they became money lenders, and then they became bankers, and uh, then they became popes, and then they became related to all the heads of Europe, and then they died out. <laughs> but uh, over a period of 600 years, that's not quite as bad as it sounds. <laughs> I don't think anybody um, heard that when I said, because I, I kind of have muted, <laughs> and that's why Mary paused, and I just went, oh. <laughs> It is a bit depressing when you put it like that, but but I I, I if I you know because I, I presumably if you want to get through ten questions, I can't answer the whole question. Answer the question in full. I need to give you an overview rather than. But the important point is that we know we know a lot about them, you know, through various sort of parish records and things like that. So we know where they come from. They come from the hills just north of Florence. If you've been to Florence, it's sort of in between Florence and Bologna. It's quite inhospitable. And it's the sort of place where they don't, you don't grow grain, you grow chestnuts and you use chestnuts to make flour, to make bread, don't ask. 
probably not very nice. But it, but it's not a particularly rich farming area, so you weren't people weren't rich. They're ambitious. At the moment, anybody had any ambition, they went to Florence, yeah, the big city. The big, I mean, okay, it's a big light. It's a, it's a, it's not dissimilar, but particularly because it was safety, safety within the walls, and that was the, that was quite a key thing. Um, so as I say, they started off just lending money. I mean, that was quite, everybody needed money and they lent money to whoever would borrow it at extortionate rates of interest. And, you know, they were canny and they they were quite, a, even right at the very beginning, they were quite a formidable group. They were sort of, you know, they were, they were lucky. They were particularly lucky that they survived the Black Death, um, 1348, Great Plague. Uh, people inside Florence, Florence being a, an urban community and quite physically quite close-knit a lot of people died in Florence but the, the the Medici who had their still had their farms in the Mugello had had fled north though the plague hit you you would get out Do you know I mean it, it was it's difficult to describe it all the monks in one of them in the monastery of Santa Maria Novella died all of the Dominican monks every single one of them there's an awful lot of you know there were quite a lot of people there it, I mean a lot of people died in Florence well over half the population much more like three quarters of the population and but the, the Medici were particularly lucky because most of them survived one or two of them died but but only a few and so they were you know they were able to take advantage of people needing money um in the aftermath and also the lack of you know other important people they were suddenly becoming they were on their way up socially on their way up in a, in a wealth context as well and then the rest of the questions will start <laughs> explaining how that happened. So do you think with the Black Death that that was uh, in some way a significant factor because they were able to capitalise afterwards, as you said, that there were certain important individuals who had perished and there were more opportunities for them to try and, and kind of make their way in the business? There were fewer people around and that's and, and so they became much more, you know, Florentine population became much smaller. And so more and more people, I mean, you, it, it was possible to access Parliament. It's difficult to quite describe. It's not democracy, but all by the time the, Florent, um, the, the Medici arrived in Florence, all um, Florentine type that wasn't democracy. No women had the vote, obviously. Um, all men over 30 who were members of a trade guild and who were up to date with paying their taxes and weren't bankrupt, which is quite interesting, this combination of clearly it's money that matters, took part in government. And you know, there were sort of from that group of people, there were smaller groups that did sort of more important things, but but basically the, the great assembly was that number of people. So it's still rather a small portion of the population, but but it is quite significant that it's not nobility. And the whole of the whole ethos of Florence was anti-nobles. So the, the nobles were educated to do things like ride and basically laze around and do tournaments and sort of fight each other. But the uh, Florentines were taught, taught their children to read and write and, and do arithmetic. And so that, you know, I mean, it's a, it was a mercantile city. It's where double entry bookkeeping started. It was where people... They, you know, they, they measured their success in their profits, not in their birth. So they used their, yeah, you know, they, they sort of became part of the government. They became a bit more influential part of the government as time went on. So um, 
by the time they got to sort of, well, I suppose by the end of the 14th century, they were rivaling the major party, the major, sorry, not party, the major family, the major, most influential family, which is the Albertsy family. And they, um, so the Albertsy family were the wealthiest and the grandest and the sort of, you know, if you wanted to, you know, they were sort of, yeah top dogs and the Medici of the Medici wanted to be top dogs too and so the rivalry that they had with the Medici starts I suppose at the end in the end at the end of the 14th century and continues into the first few years of the 15th century and it's at this point where they've made the bank the, the Medici bank has made so much money partly because they got the papal account that they at the right they were in the right place at the right time they supported the right per, the right cardinal who became who was elected pope so it's you know quite it's the way you operated in those days and so they they had really did have a lot of money and i think albert it, the, the other thing i haven't mentioned about the, the the process of government was it was it wasn't party politics it was individuals so um voting with their conscience so if you believed you know you should go to war with the pope then you voted for it. But it wasn't sort of like a three, there was no such thing as a sort of three-line whip. You didn't support, it wasn't a party. But individuals might obviously, I suppose some people went, well, obviously the Albitsy are right, so I'll vote the way that they're voting. But that isn't quite the same thing as a as a you know as a party. But it's not the other way around, which is not the Albitsy saying you vote like this, sort of thing. And the Medici, what the Medici did was completely illegal, but they amassed, effectively made themselves head of a political party. And they, so they, they did favours for people with involving money, obviously, preferential loans at cheap rates, I don't know, specialist introductions, special jobs, you know, to, in the bank for quite a lot of people, um, you know, sort of, if you wanted to, you could marry into, into the sort of, you know, the cousin of a cousin of one of the Medici, sort of. They became, they became, they offered favours, but in return, you had to vote for them. That was the deal. And they were quite ruthless. If you didn't, if people didn't vote, you know, they were, the favour was gone, you know. And, and so it, it, it was, it was, it, it was a different situation. And Cosimo de' Medici, um, who is the, uh, son of the founder of the bank, Giovanni de Bici. Cosimo de' Medici was effectively, the, the, really was the politician side of it. Giovanni de' Medici made the money and he was the one that picked the right pope. And Cosimo was the one that effectively created this political party and quite ruthlessly just got rid of the Albizzi and the, um, and the Strozzi's there, who were also their supporters. And they were all exiled. And that was it. They took the Medici then took over. And that there were, I mean, it, it didn't always go perfectly well, as you'll see. But but it, that's how you know that's how they got into power, and effectively ran Florence from 1534 to 1490. Sorry, 1434 to 1494. That was really interesting, um, Mary, because you the way you speak about them for me is bringing flashes of literally modern day mob if you if we do you a favor then you have to vote for us exactly the only way i can think i was trying to think today of an analogy and if you think of the this is not a very good it's just a quite a good analogy if you think of the medici being like old etonians who you know you don't vote you're not told to vote the way that, but all it old etonians will vote together sort of just imagine they, they vote together because they've all been to eaton that's not um, and that's not a party, but the, the Medici were the mafia 
were like the mafia, you vote for me or else, which is two completely, you see what I mean? It's two different ways of operating. And the, um, the, the Medici were definitely on the, on the mafia side. I mean, they definitely, yeah, they operated with favours. I do you a favour, you vote for me. And you mentioned the Albizzi family were a very grand family influence. Had they actually come from a noble background or were they like the Medici where they were just able to, to navigate through the system and, and get very, that power? That's a very good question. They were more noble. I mean, I mm. can't go so far as to say they were. They, I mean, I don't think outside Florence they would have been perceived of as very noble at all. They certainly weren't noble in sort of, I don't know, French royal noble, you know, that sort of thing but they were more noble and they had they had or they had really given up their contacts with um trade in all sorts which the Medici hadn't but it, and so they'd invested in the land and so they were sort of you know they were more like landowners and sort of landed gentry I suppose you might call it but yes so they were more aristocratic which was another reason that, and they despised them I mean they despised they were just in some ways just as bad they despised the Medici on a spectacular scale I mean you know they were called the new men and they were sort of sort of you know we won't touch them we don't want them anywhere near us and and that kind of thing. So they were, but they were ruthlessly outmaneuvered by Cosimo. I don't think I liked Cosimo, but you had to admire him. So coming back to the Medici, I've got a statement in front of me. Let's see if it's quite of a fair statement because it, they're said to have started the Renaissance. True or false? Or was there a middle, somewhere in the middle? Well, it's false completely, but it depends. But well, it's not complete. It depends how you define the Renaissance and. And, you know, but it is, no, it doesn't depend how you define the Renaissance. The sort of, they didn't find, they, di they didn't start the Renaissance. See, however you define it, the Renaissance started quite a lot earlier. Whether you could define it in terms of just art, painting and art, um, sculpture and architecture, or whether you define it in terms of humanism and the revival of classical, um, classical the, 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 yeah, the language of classical antiquity in a literary as well as in an artistic sense. But if it's the latter, then people were collecting, there were humanists, not in Florence, all over, but all over, particularly in the princely courts of northern Italy and at the papal court, which at this, at this point wasn't in Rome, but in Avignon. And they were hunting for classical texts in medieval libraries and, you know, looking for things. What Cosimo de' Medici could do was buy them. So, you know, he would buy, he bought the stuff, bought quite a lot of texts just to make sure that, you know, so that he could look as good as other, you know, the aristocratic courtly owners. It's also the courts where the original, where the artistic sources of the Renaissance are. So the first coins that were, you know, class medals, classical medals, were minted in um, at the estate court in Ferrara and the Malatesta court at Rimini, long before um, they were minted in Florence. But there is a distinction between Florentine humanism and the, re and the, the, the humanism at the, at the Renaissance courts, because for the Renaissance courts, they were the rulers of the Renaissance courts, were the heirs of the emperors of Rome. They saw, sorry, they saw themselves as the heirs of the emperors of Rome. You know, you could, all over Northern Italy, you can see ancient Rome. I mean, not only in Rome, but all, you know, in Verona, the amphitheatre in Verona, for example, that's just something that's still there. 
all but all through Northern Europe. So they they were they were very much reinventing themselves as the heirs to imperial Rome. But there's no way a Republican Florence could pretend to be the heirs of emperors. So they had to be the heirs of Republican Rome. Now that brings you a whole new set of language and stuff, if you like, like portrait busts and there's various other sort of things. But it's those that is what the, the, the Medici are, are originated, if you see what I mean, because they were Republicans, not... Does that make sense? A bit. <laughs> you got <a> bit confused. <laughs> Sorry, I should be laughing now and I'm muted. And I'm laughing to myself into an empty void. So I am laughing with you, Mary. Please don't feel like I'm not. I just, I should learn to start muting myself much faster. Yes, I think, so I think the answer really is, no, they're not the inventors. They didn't start the Renaissance. But the, the reason why everybody thinks they did is because it was, this was a myth invented in the 16th century to, as it were, cover up their rather dodgy 15th century past and create the image that the 15th century Medici were, you know, it was a golden age of brilliant, clever people, you know, beautiful, you know, some wonderful patrons of the art and all this kind of thing. Cosimo de' Medici was a huge patron of the arts. There's no question about that. I mean, he was one of, you know, one of the great, one of the big people. I mean, in terms of what he spent, he did have a lot to spend. But he did, you know, he commissioned a lot of quite impressive things. A lot of the churches that you visit if you go to Florence, but also amazingly famous early Renaissance works of art, like Donatello's David, um, various altarpieces. Um, I don't know how many churches. 50 or something, you know, I mean, a lot. So it's, that is important in itself. He's probably the first, he's certainly one of, he's certainly the best known businessman, patron of art, you know, rather than a prince or duke. But that's on, you know, that's partly to do with the political system in Florence was, you know, it was, it was the only republic. You can't really just, I mean, the Venetian Republic was also, was also a republic, but it's, it was, at this stage, Venice was looking at itself as heir to Constantinople, looked entirely to the east. It didn't, it really did only was only very just beginning to pay any attention to what was going on in, in um, on the mainland. And so we've been introduced to um to Cosimo, who's obviously a very significant figure in the Medici family. We're now going to move on to Lorenzo, who is known as Lorenzo the Magnificent. Could you, Mary, give us a, a little introduction to Lorenzo and in, in his story? Okay, so Lorenzo is Cosimo's grandson, and his his father inherited the I don't know, leadership, you have to call it, leadership of Florence, um, from Cosimo, who was Piero, and then Lorenzo was his eldest son, and he inherited, but his father died when he was quite young so he was only sort of about 20 when he inherited I mean so he was suddenly a young there was suddenly a young person in charge and a young person who'd be brought up to think that he was really you know rather special and grand and but there's a real distinction between the upbringing of Cosimo's upbringing and Lorenzo's Lorenzo is definitely being brought up as a little prince and he behaves like one and he uh, he makes a lot of mistakes. He, he, he quite reasonably makes mistakes because he is quite young. I mean, it's not it's not easy. Um, and he didn't. He would have. He, yeah, there were lots of decisions he should he could have made differently. And perhaps he wasn't advised very well. Whatever. But the point is, um, by the time he was in his stride, he'd married a um, 
happily married, the daughter of, of a Roman baron. So they were sort of, you know, she was a bit noble. <laughs> and he was very, very determined to, to advance the family. And he had um, his eldest son, obviously, he was bringing up as his, his eldest son was also called Piero. Very annoyingly, they are all those, there are very few names attached to the Medici. So Piero's younger brother, Giovanni, was given a, went in for a career into the church. Um, and the daughters were, you know, being groomed for marriage to various sort of important people. And he was um, making, by this stage, he, he was more interested in politics than he was, or he was better at politics than he was at banking. And he wasn't really very much of a banker. And he certainly employed the wrong people. He had rather incompetent manager, general manager, and the bank began to lose money. And it, it, you know, they had to pretend that the bank was still massively wealthy and grand, whereas in fact it was losing money and not grand at all. So there were, and then there were all sorts of little things happened. There was particularly unpleasant experience in um, one of the things that the, that the um, Medici Bank made money from was the sale was taxing the school, basically being in charge of the sale of alum. Now, alum is a mineral which is traditionally was traditionally found in the Middle East, which they had to import. But then alum mines were discovered in between, uh, in the hills, sort of between Rome and Florence, uh, in near somewhere called Volterra. So they started um, selling, the people, the Volterans, started selling alum at a lower rate than the money than the price that the Medici had put on the alum that was coming in from the Middle East and uh, this was you know uh, he wouldn't have this he said you look I'm sorry you've got to stop you know you've got to put we've you've got to put sell it at the same price as I sell ours kind of thing and they said no sorry we're doing our own you know we're doing our own thing and he's and so what he did which, which is the point at which everything suddenly really changed is he sent he hired soldiers paid for by the Florentine state. They didn't have a standing army in those days. So they, they you know, they hired soldiers and a under a condottieri. And a, so they were all mercenary soldiers, but hired them, sent them to Volterra, sacked the city and the forced the, um, the merchants to, to, you know, sell the alum at the right price. Now, the important point about that is that he was using public funds and, for private, for a purely private interest. And this isn't, a, but it became clear this was the first time he did it, but it was the first big public time he did it. But then he began, the more money they lost, the, better, the harder he had to try and raise money. And, and he needed it because he had to, that's, he, he developed very expensive tastes, very partly to look like an aristocrat. So for example, he had a, a racing stables at Pisa, um, you know, which used to win races, but, you know, this sort of, this was, this was racing then as now is Sport of Kings and, you know, and it's massively expensive. But he funded everything, including his own lifestyle and marriages and all the sort of backhanders that were needed to advance um, his son Giovanni in the church career by siphoning funds from the pub money from the public purse. And um, it's always been it was always denied obviously and but you know there were sort of just clever ways that you know bankers or sort of accountants could manage to do this but one of the most extraordinary things that um one of my colleagues found 
researching in the Florentine, academic researching in the Florentine archives, found that um, there were marginal notes on the meeting in one of the the, um, the big ledgers that recorded the, the minutes of the meetings of one of one of the um, committees from which the money was stolen, which put in the, in, you know, said, said things like, you know, and uh, or something, the text would say, the, the you know didn't have anything to do with this and this all bad and this happened and in the margin there are little pencil notes saying you know this isn't true Lorenzo did siphon all this money and it's it's magic sort of to discover this so long you know well it was it, so long after it happened but so he was very he was yeah mafia I suppose but very mm. definitely not behaving as he should do but on the other hand he brought success and grandeur and glamour to Florence and you know he he was treated as an equal by a lot of the you know rulers and critically thanks to supporting the right pope once again knowing exactly who to support him and then persuading the pope to marry his daughter to the pope's son and he persuaded the pope to give Giovanni a red hat cardinal's hat uh, and Giovanni was two, he was only about 13, and he had to, it had to s- sit in abeyance for a couple of years. But basically, he got this boy his um, cardinal's hat, which is the passport to, to wealth and riches, because it's the one way you could move up the social scale um, successfully and um, in, in the 15th century and 16th, come to that. Um, so it's difficult to know how you judge him. I mean, he was appalling and and he had a sort of grasp of the truth, which, you know, was a bit pretty thin, but he was very definitely out for his own interests. I mean, that was really what he and and, and he was successful at that. Pulled the wool out over an awful lot of people's eyes. And um, and the sad thing was he died of gout. Then Cosimo and his son, Piero, and. Um, Lorenzo all died of gout. Quite a lot of people died of gout in the 16th century, 15th and 16th. And the problem is not the gout itself, but the fact that it affects the kidneys. And so one of the side effects of gout, of untreated gout, is kidney disease. So anyway, he died of gout. And in 1492, when the boy was quite young, again, 1920, In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. I could tell you exactly how young he was, actually. I don't know why I don't. So he was born in 72. So he was 22. So 20 when his father died. And two years later, he had absolutely no concept of Republican Florence. You know, technically, this was still a republic. Not. But he, he definitely behaved as if he were, you know, the prince of Florence. And he was arrogant and boorish and... I, I must have been a nightmare. But anyway, the, the French, for various reasons, the fight suddenly introduces, becomes a complete nightmare. As the French invaded um, uh, Italy at this point. And this is, it's, it's to do with the fact that the King of France um, technically 
could claim the throne of Naples. But the only way to get, you wouldn't, you, you, the only way to get to Naples was to come down through you know, the leg of Italy. And he wasn't really trying to conquer Italy. He was trying to conquer Naples, but he had to, he couldn't do that without the support of the Pope, who's no longer the Pope with, um, you know, with the willing daughter and the red hat. For the, but, but the Pope at the stage was now Alexander VI, who is the Borgia Pope. And of course, the Borgia Pope was also only out for his own family and, and influence. But to cut a long story short, the um, it was important, Flor the Florentines, um, Charles VIII, Eighth of France asked the Florentines for support, and there was a big discussion about in Florence about whether or not they should support um, the king against the Pope, or the Pope against the king. And in the and without going to the Republican Assembly, Piero went off to Charles the Eighth and said, "Oh, you know, okay, we'll do whatever you want. And here, by the way, here are our ports of Livorno and Pisa." The Florentines were not amused, and and they sacked. They not only. I mean, they sent him into that afternoon. He got back, and you know, from seeing the king, and sort of you know, threw largesse to the crowds. And the the police just came and arrested, told, told him to get out. The whole family was sent into exile that afternoon, and were didn't they? They were out in exile for sixteen years. Oh, wow. And it sounds like they they overreached there where they'd had this accumulation of their power and and as you say, making friends in high places and picking, you know, the right people to support. But, you know, then they kind of took a step too far, it seems there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Exactly. And, and yes, and the, other, and the thing about Piero was Piero was kind of black and white, you know, whereas this required shades of grey, politics and diplomacy rather than just, you know, back, you know, war. I mean, but it was it was an interesting it was a very interesting moment. And in the end, he um, Piero died fighting for the French. But the reason the family survived is because of the, the, the cardinal. The, the young boy who was the cardinal, who um, spent the next, basically the whole of the next following 16 years, um, making sure that the Florentine, that the Medici kept their influence, particularly at the papal court, particularly, you know, he was, he was a consummate politician, Giovanni de' Medici, and he was, um, he was astute, clever, very affable, very easygoing, actually nice, probably, just liked his food rather than 
possibly more than he ought to have done. So, I mean, he enjoyed himself, um, but he wasn't, he was a very different, he wouldn't have made a banker. <laughs> but he was quite, he was definitely quite a good politician. And it's a second French invasion, which is the cousin or the, the, the heir, the next king from Charles VIII, could claim was a cousin of the of the of um, Charles VIII, Louis the must be the eleventh. Yeah, I'll get it in a minute. And he he basically could claim not only to be the heir to Naples, but also to the Duchy of Milan. And so he invaded with the intention of, of getting both Milan and Naples. That's basically most of Italy. I mean, that is in terms of you know, I mean, everything below Rome was part of the south of much just south of Rome is part of the was the was the kingdom of Naples and then the most powerful and the wealthiest state in Florence was Milan in Italy was Milan and so I mean it wasn't a very good idea to have them both part of France but anyway the the the, the Pope at the time Julius II um got rid of the French various variously and significantly with the help of his able cardinal Giovanni de' Medici, and who, who in return for various favours, he, um, the Pope agreed at force the, the Florentines to allow the Medici lift, to lift the exile and allow the Medici to come home. And so this was September 1512. And then the Pope died in February 1513. And amazingly, because he really had been working very hard at it, and he was good at it, and he was popular. Giovanni de' Medici was elected Pope in the conclave. So Leo, he was elected Leo X. So that's how they sort of you know, got back into power. And by this stage, it becomes very complicated. By this stage, you've got the French now under Francis I, very warlike, very, very I don't know what you describe him as, quite fun, you know, but also definitely not a not a mm, shrinking violet but he his and his big rival was charles v who was emperor of basically the rest of europe that wasn't england or yeah, england literally and france in those days of course was an ally of scotland but the rest the, the rest of even he was king of spain he was king his, his the spanish territories of burgundy so eastern france all of what's now belgium holland large chunks of, well, most of Germany belonged to the Holy Roman Empire. So he was emperor of that, so all of all of Austria, Hungary, most bits of Hungary he kept losing to the Turks, but that's another story. But, you know, I mean, he was a very, very, very powerful man. He didn't have Switzerland either, the Swiss cantons were independent. But apart from that, you know, he was pretty, and, he, and also he had America, which had just been, you know, been discovered the same year that the Medici were exiled. So I'm just I'm just going to cut you off here because you've already mentioned the French invasion. I just want to move on to something just a little bit different, I think would really interest our listeners anyway, because with such a large family, obviously, you're going to have severe problems, such an influential family. You're going to obviously have assassination attempts and other rival families. Can you talk us through some of these things that would have happened if the Medici didn't like somebody, they tended to get rid of them and they could do this by. They could do this sort of by, I don't know, cutting the, cutting the, not cutting them their throats, but you know, ruining their their businesses, like like the the, the Volterra merchants, for example, um, and 
like several other, um, you know, I don't know, it was the Strozzi family that got exiled along with the Albizzi at the, in 1534. They just lost everything. They lost, all, you know, they, they were exiled, but they weren't killed. Other people, particularly under Lorenzo, other people, other enemies of the, of the Medici in the, in Florence, uh, would meet sudden unexpected accidents, I think is the only way to describe it. Or they could be, or they were, ex they were charged with, you know, sedition, something, treason or whatever, and um, just sentenced to death. I mean, executed sort of legally if they could find a case. So, um, they were quite happy at, at doing that in a way that the, I mean, it, it's much more, it's not like nobody else did it. It wasn't like this was rare behaviour in Italy. You know, this is the way that they all behaved. This is the way that all the princes behaved. Some were more, I don't know, aggressively, some were worse than others, but but they did all behave, you know, with the, just the way that they got rid of their enemies was quite simple. They got rid of them. They didn't just live they, very few popes, and sorry, very few princes, only ones which really were quite canny, lived with their enemies or coped. So I think that's the answer. I don't see at this stage, there's no, because it, it's different once it becomes international, once the whole thing becomes international, the once they become part of international politics, and there's sort of the stakes are slightly higher. And, but while they're still sort of just in the, it, while this, while Florence is still a republic, you know it's not quite it's not quite so. Sorry, I'm trying to think of the right word. I can't. It's not quite so aggressive. It's not sort of. There's no wholesale slaughter. There's a certain amount of. There's a lot of threatening. So one of the ways that, for example, Lorenzo would would when he was faced with a some sort of slight uprising or sort of a general. I don't know, just unease on the streets of Florence. One of his solutions to that was just to bring in his own private army and just have them all standing around threatening. So that wasn't really killing anybody, but it isn't, it wasn't what was supposed to happen. You see what I mean? Coercion, I think is the coercive is what I, is the word I'm trying to think of. And um, there were um a few other popes in the Medici family that you had mentioned. Could you tell us a little bit about Clement VII, who Tudor enthusiasts will be aware of? Yes. Now, this is the point at which this is the point at which they do become violent on a vastly bigger scale, and this is the international politics side of it. Francis I and Charles V are rivals. Clement VII, they both want papal support for their policies so they're both trying to get Clement on their side and the Pope is very determined in a very good way a morally correct way to stay on the you know to, he refuses to get involved on in um in within with the argument on either side now the two armies the French and the the um imperial armies are fighting in northern Italy and taking it's this is the point at which Milan switches not quite weekly, but quite regularly, but it start, it's French and then it goes German and then it goes back to, sorry, Imperial and then it goes back to French. Um, and so it ends up with the, it ends up with the, um, a, a section of the Imperial army um, not being paid and deciding that they will mutiny and march on Rome, which they do. And then they sack Rome in 1527. And it's that is a 
very unpleasant. Sort of, you, you wouldn't want to have been in Rome. You were lucky. People, some people did survive. And I mean, lots of people survived, but an awful lot of people were killed. That was quite brutal. But one of the interesting things probably is it was, it was um, the German soldiers were largely Protestant. The next kind of complication in the story, whereas most of the Italian soldiers were all um, Catholics, but in particular, you know, Rome, well, it's the centre of, you know, it's the centre of Roman Catholicism, that's what it is. And, you know, but they, they, the desecration, that was the thing that shocked people, possibly even more than the murders. But the thing that was in terms, basically in terms of the Medici, that what matters is that the sack of Rome, the only, I mean, Clement just, there was nothing. Either, you know, he would have been deposed by Charles V or he had to agree. So they signed, a, they signed an agreement. They signed, signed a treaty together. Um, and the deal was that it would, which I haven't, the, the Medici got kicked out, had been kicked out again at the sack of Rome. When the sack of Rome occurred, the, the first thing the Florentines did was go, yes, Let's get rid of the Medici again, and so that's what they did. And Clement was wanted was very determined that the Medici should come should be you know allowed back, and he insisted that the the payment from Charles that he his, his side of the bargain was that Charles had to help him. Charles, the imperial army, had to be had to get the Medici back into the city, be allowed them back in. And there's a it's a long period of negotiation, and Charles keeps saying well you know but you could have you could you know well, you can't even have to give you a duchy in you know near Milan or you know somewhere like else no no we've got to go to Florence and no only uh, we're only going to be we're going to insist we don't we, we're going to go back we aren't going to pay taxes and we're going to be the number one family that's everything that they wanted and in the end the imperial army besieged Florence and killed half the country because they just, I mean, 30% of the, of the population starved. I mean, they were, it was really a very brutal siege. And that's wonderful. That's, that's not wonderful. It's, it's, it's very sad. The, there were sort of slogans painted on the walls of Florentine things. See, poor, not, you know, rather than the Medici, you know, poverty rather than the Medici and anything, you know, not the Pope. And they were sort of, they, it, it was a seminal moment for Florence because they obviously they lost the battle um, because I mean the imperial army literally just strangled it. I mean they couldn't. There was no food. Um, there was no water. I mean there was nothing. And and that was the end of the Republic. And that was the point at which the um, Charles V installed Clement. Well, this is the point. What a Medici. He installed Alessandro de' Medici as Duke of Florence, and he would, at, at the same time he was married. Um, Alessandro was married to Charles V's illegitimate daughter, Margaret of Austria. Now, the significant point about Alessandro is nobody. At, well, there's a big doubt. I mean, it's difficult to know. It's almost certain he was Clement VII's illegitimate son, which he had had with the African slave of the woman, the, the, the cousin that he was living with in Florence, when he, sorry, in Rome, during the first exile. So this was during the 1494 to 1512 exile. And so it was the first African king of, you know, but on the other hand, I think Florentines don't 
aren't necessarily terribly impressive. It's it's one of those things that is a bit swathed in mystery. But mm. it's it, that's an, it's an interesting side point. But he was very unpopular, and he got he was assassinated five years after he become duke, something like that. Yes, five years. So by his cousin, and then from the another another boy, one of the one of the cousins from the other side, another branch of the family inherited, and he was called Cosimo as well. But he's the first Duke. He's Duke Cosimo the first. So I've now got you to fifteen thirty seven. And just briefly back to Clement in this kind of twisting um, relationship you described with Charles V and with Clement VII. Um, they then were involved into the question of um, Henry VIII's divorce and um, that he was seeking from Catherine of Aragon. Could you briefly tell us a little bit about that situation? Yes, no, that's exactly that was that was the other you know there was some that was one of the demands that Charles V made in terms of his his agreement with he agreed to you know help the Medici back to Florence on several conditions, and one of the key conditions was that Clement must refuse at, at all costs to allow um, Henry VIII to divorce from Catherine of Aragon because Catherine of Aragon was Charles V's aunt, and. Charles V, by the way, isn't very old at this stage. He's in his thirties. So that was so that was quite. And it's not the thing that's very unfair about it. Or, I mean, you can see why Charles. I mean, sorry, Henry VIII had perfectly good grounds for assuming that the Pope would agree to a divorce. Um, he had one wife who wouldn't have any children, couldn't have any children, and he wanted to marry a not only nubile, younger, much younger woman, but also the heiress to Brittany. I mean, she was a bit of a sort of, you know, let's, I think we could do with Anne of Brittany. I mean, you know, she was the right person for, for, the, for, the, for Louis to marry. Um, and, and he was granted a divorce without any difficulty at all from his wife, Jeanne de Valois, who quite, so she, and she, she became a nun and, you know, lived, I think, probably more happily ever after. But, but that, the, the important point was that it, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't a rarity for rulers to get divorces um, so that they could inherit, I mean, so either they could get a bigger territory, but mostly so that they could get an heir. And so, you know, that would have been something that under other circumstances, Clement would definitely have granted it. And I think, I I, I don't know enough about the ins and outs of that particular negotiation, but the negotiations had been going on for several years before 1527. So, Yes, so that is it is, and it is quite interesting. But that's the reason why you know the Church of England is what it is. I mean, it's it's extraordinary kind of because if it you know if it if if he'd given her the if Clement had given Henry the divorce, there wouldn't he wouldn't have left Rome. So there, it's one of those if one rather wonderful if only or what I don't know whether if only is quite the right word, but but anyway, it would it would things would have been very different. And so for our final question, Mary, how did it all end for the Medici family? How did the dynasty fall? It ended in, it ended in sad, sad tragedy, really, because the last, the, the, the great, 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 whatever, grandson of Cosimo that he'd inherited, had no children. He had a very, very, very difficult father who reigned too long, was married to a religious bigot, and he just, took to drink and he took to drink on a really spectacular scale 
you know, he'd sort of vomit out of his coach on his way to sort of social events. Uh, and he died with no children um, in his bed. And the, the heir to the uh, dynasty was the emperor. Um, so in the emperor in Vienna. So that's where it went. The Habsburgs took over. And that was the end of the Medici. Mary, it is such a pleasure to always have you on our podcast. I absolutely <laughs> love this. And I wish I wish we could keep talking for the next 45 minutes. But I think we've got to get you back so we can take one of these questions and really delve much deeper into this. I don't know what you think, Beth. No, I agree. It's been be, absolutely fascinating. That would be fine. I must say, I, I'm currently writing a book which will be really written. I mean, it's just... It, I mean, it's quite funny. It is, I'm writing about Catherine, a book on Catherine de' Medici, who we've not mentioned, but obviously because she, it's, she's Clement the, the, um, the seventh's niece, and he marries her to the, to the son of um, Francis I. This is all to do with the politics of it. And then it's the second son, but the second son then becomes the Dauphin, and she becomes Queen of France. And I'm currently writing, and she's the one that does the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, or is connected with, and her son, Henry III, becomes king of Poland. Oh, then, do you know what? You've uh, just said the magic words there. You definitely... I, you just, I really, I couldn't, the whole thing has been quite funny. It comes straight back to Poland. Anyway, I'm still... I, the book isn't finished yet. I'm currently writing it. So well, um, you are welcome the thing. moment that comes back, comes out, sorry, you are welcome back onto our podcast. <laughs> or even before that, if you think of something completely random, I think our listeners will not say no to another podcast with you. Well, that's very nice of you to say so. If you think of anything I could talk about, let me know. Could you, before we finish, just remind our listeners the name of your book? It's called The Medici. It's a very simple title by Mary Hollingsworth, and it's published by Head of Zeus. And it's out in paperback, and so it's not it's not quite so expensive. It's exquisitely illustrated. Along, I can't claim the illustrations as my. I mean, I just had to give them a list, but it's beautifully, really. Head of Zeus made a really lovely book. Fabulous, Mary. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm very pleased to have done so. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>